This morning we come to the end of Luke chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 63 through 71. Luke 22, 63 through 71. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Father, I pray that you give us a clear picture of Christ in these moments, in this account that your word has given us. Father, I pray that you would give us proper application into our life, proper response of our heart. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The message is about authority. Whenever I look at preaching a text, I try to figure out what's the point of the text. What's the main point? What's the text getting at? God's word needs to carry the sermon. This text is about the clash of authorities. In fact, all the Gospels are about the clash of, the, of man and Christ. We get to see how man responds to Christ. At the very, the very definition, that at the very heart of sin is falling short of God's glory, man responding wrongly to Christ, responding wrongly to God. I'll never forget about 12 years ago, I was listening to a sermon by Paul Washer, and he was trying to get to the essence of how bad sin is. And he talked about uh, God at creation. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And he said, let the stars and planets exist, and they existed. Be put in this order, and they were put in that order. He told the planets to whirl, and they whirled. And he told the sea that you can only come this far, and it stopped. And he came to man, and he said, come. And man said, no, I won't. 
of all creation, those created in the image of God, man meets God in his authority and says, no, I'm going my own way. And that's evil and that's wicked and that's sin. We live in a country, in a culture, where evangelical churches preach Christ as though he's something you can add to your life to make your life a little better. It's like you think you got a good life, well, add Jesus, and then your life will even get better yet. And that misses the point of all the scripture and misses who man is and who Christ is. We saw Peter struggling with the authority of Christ. Peter believes Christ. Peter saved and he struggles to accept his words. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Peter says, no, you're not. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter says, I'll die for you. Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. Peter comes back and pledges that he will not do that. So whether you're a believer or a non-believer, if you're honest, you struggle when you come face to face with Christ because there's still remaining sin in your life. Even if you're born again, even if you're given a new heart, whatever remaining sin there is, it's a rebellious part of your heart. And it's a rebellious part of my heart. And in a group this big, there's some here that have yet to bow knee to Christ and be saved. And it's my prayer that as we look at this text and we look at Christ, you would submit your life to him. Now, in order to understand the clash of authority that's in this text, you need to understand a little bit about the leadership in Israel. The Sanhedrin would be like the Supreme Court, the court of all courts. There was little Sanhedrins, wherever there was a village or town that had more than 120 men, there was 23 men on this council that acted as judges in that village. And if a dispute could not be handled at that level, it would come before the great Sanhedrin, the council of 71 men that were made up in uh, to three categories. The chief priests, the high priests, and the chief priests. These were mostly Sadducees. These were the ones that ran the temple. These were the ones that were getting rich off running the temple. They loved the Passover. This is when they had to come buy their animals at exorbitant prices. And then you had the elders, the religious and secular aristocrats of the day. And then you had the scribes 
which were made up mostly of the Pharisees, uh, common folk that studied the law. And so you had the political powers of the day. You had the religious powers of the common folk of the day. And this was supposed to be the greatest, most just system that was ever known to man. We don't have time today uh, to study it. But what they had to go through, and you can read in the Mishnah, and you can read about their laws, about how they, all the checks and balances to make sure justice was done in this court. We're going to see the Sanhedrin in our text. Come and try to bring Christ, try to convict Christ. It's, it's the biggest sham trial or trials uh, you've ever seen. It's the opposite of what Israel's been called to. In Deuteronomy 16, 18, they were commanded right before they go into the promised land. They said, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. Whew, that's giving up political power there. Justice and only justice you shall follow. You may live that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What we've just witnessed in Luke is an illegal arrest. An arrest that took place off a bribe. Paying Judas to give him up so that they could arrest him with, without cause. When the religious leaders of Israel should be preparing for the feast, this is the day of the Passover. This is when they're supposed to be worshiping God, preparing the Passover lamb, having their hearts right before God, remembering that how God had saved them from their enemies and that the angel of death was turned away by the sacrificial lamb that God told them to sacrifice. It's on that night from sundown on Thursday to sundown on Friday is the celebration of this feast. And ironically, and unknowingly, they don't put it together. They're preparing to sacrifice the Lamb of God all right. They're preparing to murder Jesus on the day when their hearts should be worshiping God, remembering the salvation of God. But in order to kill the Lamb of God, in order to do this, justice must be perverted to the highest degree. 
the biggest sham set of trials we're about to see take place. Daryl Bach lists some of the violations of the proceedings according to uh, the book of the Sanhedrin that tells them how they're supposed to rule. Here's a list. The proceedings took place at the high priest's home and not in the temple, which is a violation of the Sanhedrin chapter 11, verse 2. Jesus was tried without a defense, violation of chapter 4, verse 1 of their law. Jesus was accused of blasphemy without actually blaspheming in the technical sense of the term by pronouncing the divine name, breaking the Sanhedrin 7.5. The verdict came in the space of one day when two days were required for a capital trial. Jesus was tried on a feast day, which would be breaking the command of God. Contradictory testimonies need to nullify evidence. And yet we see in the Gospels that that's all there they had. A pronouncement of guilt by the high priest is contrary to the normal order, which should start with the least senior members of the Sanhedrin. Everything about this is wrong. It was against their law to meet in the night. They needed to meet in the daytime. And yet Jesus is arrested about midnight or one in the morning. And here's what we find. Here's what we see in Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody. I just want to stop right there. So Luke is the abbreviated version of all that happened to Christ. And that's important because it helps us see what exactly Luke wants us to see when he's writing it. But I do want to share with you what's already happened before he's held in custody in the other Gospels. I just want to read it so you have it in your mind because this has already happened. I don't know the next time we're going to be in a Gospel, but I want us to get the full understanding of what took place with our Lord on this night. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 18. We're, we're going to begin in verse 12. We're not going to read all this, but I just want to point out some things. John 18, starting in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, so we get the first point of chronology here. They led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So Annas is like high priest emeritus. He was a high priest. Now his son-in-law is the high priest. 
And so they lead him to their leader, a leader they respect, a leader that it would be that it was the first place they brought him, which tells us something. And then he was led after that to Caiaphas, uh, which we'll see in the other Gospels. But here's what we read in verse 19 of, of John 18. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, heard, heard me uh, what I said to them. They know what I said. In a sense, Jesus is saying, let me bring some witnesses in. They heard me. If this is not a sham trial, I spoke in public. Let's bring witnesses in. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, what if I said, or if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So here you have Annas being called the high priest. He was, he's still functioning in that light, according to John. And then he gets sent to Caiaphas. So this is in the middle of the night. This is all illegal. You can't do this. The Sanhedrin is gathered in the middle of the night. This is their night to arrest him. This is their night to strike. And then turn to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. The reason why I'm showing you this is everything we're going to read in Luke is the technically daytime trial. The sham trial already takes place in the night, but then they got to do it like hypocrites would do it during the day. So I'm showing you what has taken place. Even before they hold Jesus' custody, this is what's taking place. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Right there, we see the assembled Sanhedrin. All the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. That's the Sanhedrin. And in verse 54 we read, And Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Think about it. This is the Supreme Court. Cases get brought to them. Evidence gets brought to them. And the Supreme Court is out in the night and they're seeking evidence so that they can murder him. This is the biggest sham to justice the world has ever seen. This is the high court. This is where God's Glory is supposed to be upheld. Justice 
justice, truth is what God cares about. Truth is what God wants. But they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. There's supposed to be harsh punishment for false witnesses before this court. And they're seeking them. Can someone give us some false witnesses? For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy the temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and he made no answer. Lawfully, there's never, there hasn't been a just charge yet. When witnesses disagree, there's nothing to answer for. But he remained silent, made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Aha. Another authority has entered the room. At the authority of the right hand of God. Where all authorities are under that authority. And then we read... We'll dive into that more in Luke. And then the high priest tore his garments, which actually is against the law of Moses. The high priest can't tear his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Are you kidding me? In an hour? The high priest is going to call for a verdict. Jesus has no defense witnesses that get to be called. The two days, we're just going to ignore that. It's the feast day. That's going to be ignored. What's your decision? He asked the Sanhedrin. And they all condemned him as deserving death. <laughs> wow. How can a whole group, 71 men, all find him guilty when there's no evidence? You see, it's really hard to provide evidence for the spotless Lamb of God. What are you going to find against him? What has he done wrong? Banished illness from all your villages and preach the truth of God and salvation to you? What he has done is he's exposed their hearts. He's challenged their authority. And that's when man strikes. That's why when Jesus says, follow me, he describes it as denying yourself because there's no such thing as keeping yourself in following Christ. 
It means saying, he's Lord, you have my life. My life is for you. And then we read in verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him. Okay, now we're to our text. Now we're to the point where Luke picks up, right? And to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And then in Mark 15, 1, it says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held consultation. That's their legal proceeding, supposedly, with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And then after that, they bound Jesus and led him away to deliver him over to death to Pilate because they couldn't unleash capital punishment or they would be punished. So they need to get Rome to kill him. So first they got to convict him in their court, then come with the charge before Pilate, but they can't even come with the charge that they're upset with, him saying he's the son of God. They got to come with the charge. He says he's king and he's challenging Caesar's kingship. And so they're willing to do anything to kill Christ. So you see what leads us up to our text. So when we read in verse 63 in Luke chapter 22 now, now the men were holding Jesus in custody, were mocking him as they beat him. The sham trial's already taken place. They've already questioned him. And now they got to wait till morning. Now the sun's got to come up where they can consult together in the daylight. All right. The first question in your notes is, what will you do with Jesus? These soldiers have him. They have Christ. They can look him in the eyes. Peter, remember, made eye contact with Jesus after he denied him. And Luke tells us he wept bitterly. As Peter recognized his own autonomy, his own pride, questioning Jesus' words that Jesus said were going to come true, Peter, when he makes eye contact with Christ, is present with Christ as much as he's ever been present with Christ. And he wept bitterly. That's the right response as we see our prideful hearts that want to make our own way rather than submit to Christ's way. But now we get to see others with Christ. The last day of Christ's life, these men have great opportunity holding in custody this night. But here's what they did with it. They were mocking him as they beat him, they blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now our puny little brains have a problem grasping 
what's happening. <laughs> it's amazing how the, the scripture Scott picked, Colossians 1.15 is what I have at this point in my sermon, where it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He created the Sanhedrin authorities. He's sovereign over everyone and everything. And right now, sinful man is looking him in the face and punching him in it as they cover his head saying, prophesy. You say, why would people be so cruel? Well, I have a theory. There must have been something about Jesus that was different than other criminals they've had. Maybe they saw him do a miracle earlier. Maybe during the arrest, they saw the ear be healed. But they're stuck between two authorities. They got to do their job, but they must be questioning. Why not just mock him? They want him to prophesy. They want to test him. It's almost as if they know who he is. And they know how wrong it is what they're doing against him, and they just want him to stop it by showing one last miracle. Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. Jesus is on the cross. He must be suffering different than others. They, they start saying things like, you know, he said he's the son of God. Let, 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 let God rescue him. And so they have him. It's like they know he's true. And so they have to fight him because their hearts aren't submitting to him. It's like there's a battle within their mind. And maybe that's you here today. Maybe you've come face to face with Christ. And all you've done your whole life is mock and argue and battle and try to find Ways to say God's word isn't God's word. Or the resurrection really didn't happen. And why are you fighting so hard? Why are you challenged by this man? Because deep down inside, you know he's true. You know he's right. You know his authority you see his authority in his words. But unless the human heart is converted, even if they know it, they'll re rebel against it. What do you do with Jesus? How I believe the Holy Spirit can help every one of you know in your life right now as we speak, how Jesus' authority is up on your toes. In his word, you know what he says. You know he's worthy to be believed and follow. And the first question is, is what will you do with Christ when you're with him? You mock him, 
You beat him. You shrug him off. So many people say, I know it's wrong, but I don't care. He'll forgive me later. It's like putting a blindfold over his face and punching him and mocking him. And it's trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. And then we see in verse 66. By the way, Jesus predicted this would happen, this mocking. Back in Luke 18, he said he'd be delivered over to the Gentiles who'd be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. You read all the Gospels, all those things happen to him. He knew it ahead of time. Well, you find, even as Jesus is being mistreated and put through these sham trials, he's in control of everything. He's in control of all of it. He's predicted it ahead of time. He knows what he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows this is the power, the hour of pow- the power of darkness. So then we read in verse 66, when day came, when the sun came up, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. (laughs) Now realize how big a sham this already is. Mark already said in the middle of the night, Jesus said, I am. (laughs) I am the Christ. Clear as a bell. Now the sun comes up. Now they gather another trial. Remember when Jesus, back in Luke 20, cleared the temple? They didn't like that authority that stepped into the temple. And they said, tell it in in verse 2 of Luke 20, tell us by what authority do you do these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? He said to them, I'll also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where he came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority do I do these things. He says, if I ask you a question, you won't answer. This is already played out over and over again. He's already clearly told them over and over and over again. They've dogged him from the beginning of his ministry. Remember back in Luke 4 when Jesus goes into the synagogue in his hometown and he reads Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 which speaks of the Messiah coming and the Spirit of the Lord being upon him and he's to preach good news to the poor and he says today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and what did they do? They took him to the edge of the cliff and tried to throw him off it. From the very beginning, he said, I'm the one. Luke chapter 5, the very next chapter, 
The guy, the paralytic's coming through the roof. He tells them, your sins are forgiven. All their leaders get angry. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, G- and what does Jesus do? What's harder? To say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Well, it's harder to say, get up and walk, and it actually happened than, than to just say the words, your sins are forgiven. But he says, so that you know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And he walked. Why do they have any questions? From the very beginning, all along, Jesus has been describing who he is. In John 4, the woman at the well said, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called to Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He hasn't done this in secret. So when he get asked, gets asked this question, and his answer is, if I tell you, you will not believe, that's been proven over and over and over again. If I ask you, you will not answer, he says. And then in verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on, No matter what happens in the rest of these unjust trials, just know there's another court proceeding that's going on. They knew exactly what he was saying when he said that. He's quoting Psalm 110. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. This is one of the most quoted messianic texts in the Old Testament. Here's what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All right. They know Psalm 110. He's going to sit at the right hand of God. And the question is, who are his enemies? They are his enemies. They're there to murder him. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Gentiles are going to offer themselves as the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This king, this one, is said of him in this psalm, you are the priest forever after, or, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He shall shatter chiefs 
over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The Lord says to my Lord. Yahweh says to my Adonai. And Adonai always refers to deity, to God. The Lord says to my Lord. This is why Jesus brought this up to the Pharisees. And they're trying to wrestle who is Jesus. In Matthew 22, verse 41, we read, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. He said to them, how then is, how is it then that David in the spirit, so speaking in the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your foot. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. See, Jesus is showing them that the Messiah is greater than David. David is saying that the Messiah is greater than David. He's the king of Salem. That's the high priest. He says he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nation, filling them with corpses. So within this little text we have, where it looks like Jesus is getting beat up and, and, and treated unkindly, and someone might think, man, things are out of control. Things are not out of control. Things are not out of control. Jesus is willingly there. He said he was going to be there. And as their little man authority that only brings injustice is standing here against him, Jesus reminds them of another throne. Jesus reminds them of another judge that'll judge their judgments. From this time on, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God Matthew and Mark say, riding on the clouds, which brings us to Daniel 7. So this is the Son of Man who enters the presence of the Ancient of Days, who's given a kingdom and authority and dominion to rule over his enemies, and that'll last forever. This is what the whole New Testament continues to bring. This is the image you need to see of Christ. Ephesians 1.20, Paul says this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. They say to him, so they all said, this is verse 70, 
in Luke 22. They all said, are you the son of God then? He said to them, you say that I am. In the middle of the night, he's already given them the clear I am in Mark's account. He says, you say that I am. It sounds cryptic. He's saying something true. The, the meaning of this sentence is, I am, but I don't quite mean it the way you say it. Their idea of the Messiah is wrong. And he's saying, yeah, I am the Messiah, but you don't even understand what you're talking about when you're asking that question. Here's what Bach says. Now, here's the picture. Let's go back to the beginning of the sermon. Is Jesus someone you just add to your life to make your life a little better? For real. <laughs> Is he? It makes no sense in light of the scripture. Here's what Bach says. The claim here is extensive. It is not a crime in ancient Judaism to claim to be the Messiah. As the Bar uh, Kochaba revolt in 1 AD 132. There had been several that have claimed to be Christ before that. But Jesus is saying more than this. He is claiming to be able to go directly into God's presence and rule at divinity's side from heaven. This is worse than claiming that he can march into the holies of holies in the temple and reside there. The Jews fought the Maccabean war over the holiness of the temple's inner sanctum. They was defiled. They fought a whole war over that, the earthly temple. But they held the holiness of heaven itself even in higher regard. Jesus' statement offends their senses of God's holiness. In addition, it implies an even more significant claim. The Sanhedrin has Jesus on trial. Its members are his judges. His fate is in their hands. But if Jesus is to rule from God's side in heaven, then they cannot judge him since he is their judge. The use of the Son of Man recalls the picture of authority given from God to one who is like the Son of Man in Daniel 7. The implication does not slip the theologians in the crowd. This scene's irony in terms of who holds God's power cannot be greater. Jesus argues that from now on, whatever happens at this trial is irrelevant. His rule is from God's side and will follow. People will think they have the right to make a judgment about Jesus, but the judgment that counts is the one made by the resurrected Son of God. And then Bach says, in sum, Jesus makes himself and his authority the issue. The leaders are astute enough, astute enough to see the claim. So they ask, are you the son of God? They sense the depth of what Jesus is claiming, that Jesus uniquely shares God's rule and power. It's a clash of earthly authority and the authority of Christ. So in verse 71, they say, what further testimony do we need? Who can claim to go to the right hand of God? 
We have heard it ourselves with our own lips. The question for us is, what do you do with Jesus Christ? How will you respond to Jesus' authority over your life? How will it go for you when you stand before Christ? Because you will. That's why in John, he talks about obeying the gospel. Because in the gospel, it says, repent and believe in Christ. It comes as a command. And the question is, is will you repent? Will you recognize him as the creator of the universe? The one who went to the cross and died in your place? Will you submit to Jesus Christ? I chose those words carefully. Submit yourselves to Christ the Lord. He is the authority. That's what it means to be a Christian. To say, Lord, whatever you have of my life. Whatever you say about marriage. I want to honor you in it. Whatever you say about loving my Wife, whatever you say about loving your husband, young people, whatever Christ says about being obedient to parents. See, this is practical for every single one of us. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You will die. You will stand before Christ. Everyone in this room will. When he comes back, he's only saving those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's not coming to save those who know about him. He's not coming to save those who sat in church. He's not coming to save those who give good tithes. He's not coming to save those who are accepted by the religious community. He's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him because they've seen that he is their only hope. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the question is, is will you submit to him? Will you have him? During our devotions after dinner earlier this week, we read Psalm 7. And in verse 11 of that psalm, we read, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If man does not repent, he will wet his sword, meaning he'll plunge it through your heart. He'll wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making arrows, fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. That's everything we're seeing in this trial. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Will you? 
how will it go for you if you die tonight? How will it go for you if he comes tomorrow? Hebrews 10.26 says, if we deliberately go on sinning, or if we deliberately, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And then he says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. The Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Earlier in Hebrews 2, 3, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The idea is this. If you take the gospel of Jesus Christ and you look at it and you see that it's the only way a sinner can be saved. When he says deliberately go on sinning, what it means is you look at that and you say, no, there's another way than submitting to Christ. There's another way. Then there's only fearful expectation of judgment. There's two ways to respond to Jesus when we look in his eyes. One is with repentance and humility, seeing that Jesus is going to win your salvation because of his great love. And there's those who look into his eyes And they stiffen up in their soul and they say, no, I'm going to hang on to the dignity of man. I'm going to please the rulers of this day. And so it's my prayer that you see Christ, that you humble yourself before him. Because he is just hours away in this text from winning your salvation because of his great love for which he has for you. But he's not a cherry on top of your ice cream. He's not just to make your life a little better on on this earth. He's the Lord of glory and he's worthy of your life in our worship. Father, thank you. Even as Christ is scorned and beaten and mocked, he shines forth so glorious and bright and strong. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. Amen.